0: So this morning, if you would uh, take your Bible and open it up to the book of Luke, and if you don't have a Bible, then in the back of the seats there, you could follow along with us as we uh, go to Luke chapter 19. Now, um, growing up uh, for me in uh, in the Catholic Church, the the week leading up to Easter was a big week. In fact, the the season leading up to Easter was... Uh, we called it Lent, and I, I've shared about that before. Um, when I, I was a kid, I remember we would go to McDonald's. My mom would pick me up from school, and uh, because for Lent, uh, she would say, okay, we're going to give up meat, and um, so she would buy me fish fillets, and I never understood why. I just said, you know, I want a hamburger. She'd say, no, you're getting a fish fillet today. I'm like, okay, I like fish fillet, but but uh, you know, the older that I got, the more I started reading the Bible, I, I see this. This last week of Jesus is what is known as the Passion Week. It's a very significant week. In fact, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books that are called the Gospels, the the Gospel means the good news. And it's not just the the small portion or the, it's not insignificant, but it's not just the portion of Jesus' last week on earth. The Gospels represent his whole life, what he's done Um, his values, what he taught, how he healed people, how he loved people. But the Gospels, the account of Jesus's life, they spend so much time specifically going into the last week of his life because his whole life accumulated in this thing that happened this last week, which was Jesus being proclaimed as the king, which was Jesus going to the cross, uh, dying for our sins and the resurrection. And so this morning, I'm going to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to be able to uh, not only understand his word, but to learn more about this time in Christ's life and what this means for us. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. We ask that uh, you would take now these words and Lord, you would use them. Lord, use them to help us to understand more about the life of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to come with fresh eyes, to see something, Lord, that we may have seen before, to read words that we may have heard before. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would take those words and bring meaning and life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Sunday, it's known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we call it Palm Sunday. And then uh, on Monday, there's the cleansing of the temple uh, where Jesus goes in and he turns over the tables because they were kind of ripping people off in the temple. Uh, You get to the controversy with Jewish leaders on Tuesday. Wednesday, it's apparently this day of rest. Uh, You get to Thursday, it's this preparation for the Passover. Friday, the trial and crucifixion. And Saturday, Jesus is in, uh, he's, Uh, in the tomb but really there's a work that is going on because by the time you get to Sunday morning Jesus is raised from the dead now I want you to pick it up with me in Luke chapter 19 and the title of the message is crown him or kill him happy Palm Sunday Um, you know you think about like a title for a message and you know this morning I I, I was until the wee hours of the night into the early morning I was really praying like, like we're In the book of Titus, and I was going to teach Titus chapter 3, but looking at Palm Sunday, I really kind of wanted to focus on this specific day in the life of Christ, especially since the kids were going to come and be able to to sing and just kind of looking at this day with some fresh eyes. In Luke chapter 19, verse 1, it says, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Okay, pause there. Jericho. He is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem in a a place called Jericho. And at this point in time, it says that Jesus set his face like flint. In other words, Jesus had a goal and he was going forward. It's kind of like I have a friend that was running for public office and election season came up and it was like everything was kind of poured into that election season. Well, for Jesus, this last week of his life, Everything is poured into the accumulation of a life that has been lived in a way that, that has been under scrutiny and examination by people, uh, people with all this controversy. Who is this guy named Jesus? He's healed some people. He said some things. And so this morning at the outset, I'm going to let you know that this is a, a controversial thing. The life of Christ either brings us to a place of, I want nothing to do with him Or I want him in my life and I want to worship him. Neutrality with Jesus is a very difficult thing. And I think it's important for us this morning that I implore you not to be neutral, but to just examine the scriptures and say, okay, what is this man like? And is there something worthy in this man that exalts him above other men to be worshiped? Is there something about this man that sets him apart as different? And for us that are our followers of Christ already, to have those fresh eyes and to see what it is that God wants us to see. Now, before I went to Israel, um, I would read names of places in the Bible and they meant nothing to me. I mean, I, I knew significance, but, but seeing the places kind of helped me to picture some things. And so on your screen there, that's a picture that um, I took, I think in 2006 when we were in Israel. And if you look at the Judean wilderness that Jesus went through, it, it was a wilderness that was uh, really barren, that was desert. This is the road from really Jericho to Jerusalem. And this is the place where when you read in the Gospels that Jesus was tempted by the devil before Jesus' public ministry. In fact, that's the road that he would have taken going uh, from Uh, jericho towards jerusalem And, and by all accounts when you look at that it just is desolate and i really believe that the temptations of christ by the devil were temptations for jesus to take another way and and all throughout jesus's life you're going to see that um people will come up against him and the devil will come up against him to derail him from doing what god the father would want him to do And I really believe in our own lives that there are things that come into our lives that kind of derail us and our temptations from going down the path that God wants us to go down. The Bible says that after those temptations that the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. And now as Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to die and be crucified, I would say that this is an opportune time. This is the time where the devil is going to come with all all force to try to detract and distract Jesus from doing what he was about to do. So it says that he was on his way, but I'm blessed by the fact that he wasn't in so much of a hurry that he didn't have time for anyone else. Um, Sometimes we get a mission in our minds and there's something that maybe even is a good thing that God is calling us to do. And we can get so busy or so focused that we don't notice people that are right in front of us. But there was this man named Zacchaeus, and you read in chapter 19, verse 2, that this man named Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Let me explain that he was good at his job. To be a tax collector meant the Roman government would say, here's the amount I want you to collect in taxes. But whatever you charge above and beyond that, that is your fee. That's your pay. So this is a tax collector that is rich, which means that he is probably charging a hefty fee. And tax collectors were despised in Jerusalem and in Israel because the Roman government was imposing these taxes as a colony in a sense. So here's this tax collector. It says in verse three, he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd for he was short of stature. I, I love to read the Bible and, and see these things in my mind. Here's this, this short guy, he's looking, and there's this big crowd. And if you've ever been at a parade, um, Disneyland is a great example. If you are not there like two hours before those parades, you are not going to be able to see the things that are right in front of you, especially if you have little kids, and so if you have little kids, if you're a parent, you know what it feels like, like I do, to have sore shoulders from lifting them up for half an hour, and then and then you get tired, you want to put them down, they're like, no, dad, put me back up. So like, you're trying to hold them up. Well, Zacchaeus is a grown man. He's trying to see who Jesus was. He heard these things about Jesus. Um, he had uh, no doubt heard all of these controversies, uh, people being healed by him and the things that he was teaching. And so because he couldn't see and, and the crowd is there in verse four he ran ahead so he he ran uh, you know in front of them before the parade he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was going to pass that way in verse five and when jesus came to the place he looked up and saw him and said to him zacchaeus make haste and come down for today i must stay at your house now imagine you don't know Jesus. You, you have heard about him, but you really don't know him. So you know he's coming this way and there's this parade and you wanna check it out and you can't see him. So you run ahead of the crowd. You climb up in a tree and now you're perched in this perfect place where you could say, hey, give me your video camera. You know, hand me that. I, I could see everything that's going on. And as Jesus is walking by, you are in the tree And imagine what that would be like for you to be Zacchaeus, and he stops. You're going, wow, he stopped right here in front of me. Then he looks up at you, and you are in the tree, and he calls you by name. And says, Zacchaeus, I need to come and stay at your house. Now, this blows me away, because I just think that, you know, there's times when Maybe it, it's a parade because it's a famous person. Um, living in L.A. during the, the dynasty of the Lakers, you know, um, from the 80s and the 90s, I mean, they were just dominant. And they would have these Laker parades. I remember one time we went down to, to Los Angeles to want to see what was going on, and, and you couldn't see them. And much, I mean, can you imagine like Shaq just stopping and say, hey, you all I'm going to stay, you're like knowing you by name, like calling you out. Well, this is Jesus and everyone's talking about him. And to Zacchaeus, we read this. If, if you were raised in a Christian home, you probably know songs about Zacchaeus from Sunday school. But for Zacchaeus, this is highly abnormal. This is out of the ordinary. This is crazy because Jesus stops and calls him by name. And says, Make haste, come down. I must stay at your house. And in verse 6, so he made haste. That I means he, he was fast. He came down. He received him joyfully. And then in verse 7, but when they saw it, this is all the people and all the crowd, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. What is this guy doing? What is this rabbi doing associating with a tax collector like Zacchaeus? Someone with a a shady past. Someone with a reputation. See, in our minds when we think of quote-unquote sinner, uh, in fact, no, I'm not going to go, but if you just pictured in your mind sinner, everybody would have maybe a little bit of a different picture of what they imagine sinner to be because we have cultural ways of saying whoa you know really bad that person is a sinner that's what this religious group was kind of doing in reality all of us are sinners in reality a sinner could have a suit and tie and be driving a jaguar to the office that is just a you know a power office in Washington DC could be sinner a sinner could be a mother who has kids and runs them in the minivan from soccer practice to dance lessons to whatever the next thing is. A sinner could be someone that is violent and angry and is in prison. And a sinner could be a quote unquote just generally good citizen and you would never expect that person in your mind when you think of the word sinner. Because a sinner is someone that is separated from God, different than God, because God has no sin. So wherever my life doesn't match the character of God, I I show myself to be different than him, and that's what the word holy means. He's set apart, he's altogether different than us. And so in a sense, we're all on level ground to a certain degree, but this guy, Zacchaeus, had a reputation. I think it's very important that there's a lesson for us to learn in this, that God doesn't necessarily see people the way that we see people. Sometimes we think of someone as being very far from God because they don't fit the mold of what you would think of as a religious person. But that person might be searching and open and looking. And someone that we think of in our mindset as Americans that really doesn't have a need for God or religion because they have a good life, they um, are, are a part of the community. They serve on different committees. They help out in different ways. Sometimes we look at that person and think, well, you know, they're volunteers at hospitals and they do these nice things. They really don't have a need. But God sees us in a a different way. And so when it comes to the people complaining about Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus in verse eight, he stood and he said to the Lord, he said, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold, four times what I ripped off. This is what is known as a word called repentance. It means a change. It just means going in one direction and changing the direction that you were going into. And it means that Zacchaeus not only received Jesus, as it says, he received him, but his life matched it. And I hope that that's our desire, that we want our lives to match the things that we believe about God. Because where there's the disconnect in what we believe and what we do, we realize that there's some type of growth that needs to happen, some change that needs to happen in there. In verse nine, Jesus said to him, "'Today salvation has come to this house "'because he also is a son of Abraham.'" And I love this in verse 10 because I believe that it's one of the encapsulated mission statements of Jesus for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is on a seek and save mission. He is not on a mission to say, I am indifferent towards you. And if you want me, then I'm here for you. And if you want to come, then come. That wasn't his mission. Jesus' mission was seek and save. Go after, look for, reach out to. Seek and to save that which was lost. Now, Zacchaeus opened this door by climbing a tree, by going out on a limb, if you want to put it that way. Zacchaeus actually did something to show that this curiosity that was in his mind and this feeling that was in his heart was acted upon. And this morning, maybe you're here as a seeker, you're kind of wondering, and I hope that this is, in a sense, you're out on the limb moment just to listen and to kind of be open to say, who is this Jesus? Zacchaeus, in reality, wasn't seeking Jesus as much as it was Jesus was seeking him. And that's the thing that blows me away, because when we think we're seeking after God, we're curious, we hear some things, start to read some things, uh, turn on maybe television and watch uh, some Christian television, which, by the way, be very careful. There's some bad, bad stuff out there that makes me want to throw my shoe at the TV in the name of Christianity. Um, Read the Bible, but when you read it and you just see who Jesus was and what Jesus was like... I think that when we start to seek after him, what we, we don't realize all the time is that he is the one that's seeking after us, that it's not a coincidence that there is a person in my life that is this kind of a, a, a person that I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to their faith or I'm drawn to something about them or it's not a coincidence that I'm listening to the radio and I'm hearing these programs or, or I'm reading these books. When Jesus looked up to Zacchaeus, he knew him by name before Zacchaeus ever knew that Jesus knew who he was. Zacchaeus didn't um, say what is known today sometimes as the sinner's prayer. There was no altar call. He didn't come forward at a a harvest crusade. But I love the fact that God saw his heart. And for some of us, when we came to faith and believing in Christ, we we know the date. We could say it was April uh, 4th, you know, 1995, I remember where I was. I remember the message that I heard. Others of us, were not so sure, but it's been kind of this gradual progression. And the more that we read and find out who Jesus is, and the more that we open up our heart to say, God, if you're real, then show yourself to me. Sometime in that process, as we look back, God gripped my heart. And I love that, that there's both of those testimonies. This man named Zacchaeus was rich when it came to material wealth, but he was spiritually impoverished. But on this day, he became spiritually wealthy. It says in verse 11, now as they heard these things, that means they heard Jesus saying, "Um, you know, you too are a son of Abraham. And uh, they heard salvation has come to this house. So all these people in verse 11 hear what Jesus is saying. And so because he heard these things, it says, He spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So remember that on a day like this, the Passover, they were looking to the Passover as national freedom. The Passover for the Jews was a reminder that when they were in oppression under the the Pharaoh in Egypt, that God rescued them and he freed them. They're wondering, is today the day? Is this how we are going to be rescued? And so when Jesus hears this and he hears them complaining and he also sees how they're responding to what he said, he tells them this parable. And a parable is a story that illustrates a truth. So he said in verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom And to return. So the nobleman in this parable is Jesus, who left heaven to come to earth to receive a kingdom for himself and return to heaven. But in verse 13, it says, He called ten of his servants. He delivered to them ten minas and said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign after us. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants. Um, He he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And it says that then they came, uh, then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, you also over five cities. And then another came saying, master, here's your mina, which I have kept. And I put it away in a handkerchief for I feared you because you are an austere or severe man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas, for I say to you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and kill them before me. So Jesus tells this parable. Remember, a parable is a a a story that illustrates a truth. If you read the book of Matthew, you find that there is also a a parable of something called the, the talents, And in these 10 talents, a certain number of talents is given to one person, certain number of talents to another, certain number of talents to another. But in this case, everyone is given one mina. In the parable of the talents, what Jesus is showing is that we should take the talents that we have and use them. We should not just sit on those talents, but we should help to grow them, to use those talents to make a difference And to use them for God's glory. But when it comes to this Mina, everyone is only given one, which represents a life. And when you consider this life that we are given, you have one life and you and I must decide what do we do with this life? Jim Elliott wrote this. He said that no man is a fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. In this life, the ratio of lives per person is one to one. Lives per person, it's one to one. And there are no do-overs. So what do I do with the life that God has given to me? 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 says this, but I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully Each one, as he purposes in his heart, let him give, not of grief or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I think about my life, and what am I doing with that? Am I offering that to God? Am I asking God to take my life and to use that? And realize this, that what we do with what we have now will impact the future. Spurgeon said this, it is always so, The gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness while the unfaithful person sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There is no such thing as standing still in religion. When I first read this, I I remember reading this and being confused. Like to the one, you know, to the guy that has none, take even the one that he has and give it to the guy that has a lot. And to the guy that has a lot, give him more. And, and maybe I had this like, without realizing it, almost like a socialistic mindset. Everyone should be equal, have the same amount and everything should be fair. But when it comes to faith and my relationship to God and my life, I have to understand that there is a principle that faithfulness is given more. And faithfulness is given more opportunities and faithfulness is given more influence and there's a, a greater opportunity to grow those things in our lives. And so Jesus is not addressing our talents and in our, our abilities as much as what am I doing with this one life that I have? Now, one of the things that causes us not to offer our lives to God is what the guy with the one Mina did. And he said, I knew you to be an austere or severe man. So I took it and I buried it. And I want you to think about how many times people can think about God because God is kind of like the landowner, you know, the the one that's sending these guys out. And if that represents God, I I realize there are times that the reason why I don't commit my life to God is that I'm afraid of Him. I I think He is uh, fearful, I think that He's scary. I think that God just wants to uh, chase me down when I blow it and and slap me or like, you know, put me under his thumb. I, I think of God in that way. And if I think of God in that way, then I could easily pull back from committing my life to him because of the fear that is there. Now, in the Bible, there is a healthy fear of the Lord. That healthy fear is an awe, a reverence, and a respect, But it it is not a fear that causes me to run because I don't trust his character. And the fear that causes us to run away from God because we don't trust his character is a fear that can cause us from missing out on the best things that God has for us in life. And I really believe that there are times that we could pull away from God because we are so afraid of God. A.W. Tozer wrote this, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy concept of God. Nothing deforms the soul or twists the soul more than a low or unworthy concept of God. Tozer went on to say that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thought that we we have. So my question for us this morning, this confrontation as Jesus confronts us with who he is, Am I afraid of him? And even as a believer, sometimes we could pull away from him. Remember, it's his kindness and mercy that draws us to repentance. So understand that there will be those that don't want Jesus to reign over them, and there will be judgment. And not that God desires to wipe us out, but really he's warning us because we have a choice, if we want to, to be separated from God. I pray that that's a choice that we don't make and that God shows us his character and the Holy Spirit reaches out to each one of us. Um, What that means is your heart might be beating, you might be nervous, and you might be considering, are these words true? And for me as a believer, it's am I really willing to trust God with my future and trust him with making decisions for me? See, too many times culturally, We want Jesus to be the one that blesses our plans. We don't want him to disrupt anything. We just want him to bless the things that we already wanna do. And we want him to, my dad was a plan checker for the city of Los Angeles. Uh, He was a civil engineer. He would look at the plans and if everything matched up, he would put a stamp of approval. Because you have that stamp of approval, you can now begin to build. I think sometimes we want Jesus to be like the plan checker and we have the plans and we just want him to put the stamp on our plans so that we could go ahead and do what we want to do. But the thing that we don't want to do is to give the plans and submit our lives to him and for him to say, you're going to have to draw this all over because this is a bad foundation. And I see that this is not structurally sound. And if you begin to build on this, Eventually in an earthquake or in winds or in some severe condition, this will all crumble. And the reason why I'm telling you to rebuild and start from scrap and let me redo these plans is because your plans aren't the right plans. And we have a fear, I believe at times of submitting plans to God because we're going, okay, don't, don't, reject, don't reject my plan. Because this is so much what I want my life to be like and what I want to do. And that's a misunderstanding that God really does want to bless us. And that God really does want uh, the best plan for us. So in verse 28, when he had said this, he told this parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent their way uh, went and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. Now I imagine being a disciple and Jesus saying, hey, you know what? I need a colt. Could you go get one for me? Where are we going to get one? Um, There's one, you're going to go into the city. You're going to find one that's there and it's never been ridden before. And just go ahead and and it's tied up, but unloose it and go ahead and bring it. And if anyone asks you, just say that I need it. Can you imagine what that's like to be the disciples? And like you're all, all right. Well, it worked with the fish. Remember, he told us to throw the net on the others. Okay, let, let's do it. So they go. They're untying it. And I, I don't know about you, but I would be the guy that would go and untie it real fast and try to run out of there. Like I'm I'm ripping off this colt, you know, and but the guy comes out and he stops him, like, what are you doing? Um, the Lord has need of it. And Go ahead. I, I, that, to me, is Jedi mind trick, you know? These droids, aren't the droids, you know? We have, he has need of it. You may have the cult, you know? And, and God just, he works this out because he knows this is gonna happen ahead of time. But realize that we, we look at that story and it's kind of a funny story. But in Zechariah, in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy of the king that would come in riding um, on a cult in this way that would bring in this peace, so this was actually a fulfillment to something that had already been written. This was a fulfillment to a prophecy. So Jesus chose to place himself in a position where he has needs. That, that's a weird sentence. Um, if anyone asks you why you're losing it, say the Lord has need of it, as though Jesus needs anything. But he chose to put himself in a position where he had needs, uh, um, loaves and fishes to multiply or a boat to preach from or a house to stay in, or a friend's tomb to borrow for a couple of days. Those things are all borrowed. He put himself in this place of need. They spread their clothes on the road as he went. Verse 37, then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Now, why are they rejoicing? And they're praising God with a loud voice. So it seems like there's a crescendo. It seems like their voices are getting, they're quiet at first, they're getting louder, and they begin with a loud voice to praise God for all the mighty works that they had seen. Notice in verse 38 saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It says in the book of Matthew chapter 21 that they began to spread out these palm branches where we get the, the phrase Palm Sunday. And the multitudes went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! This is the road that we walked down on the way from the Mount of Olives uh, down towards Jerusalem. That's the group uh, that is uh, there ahead of us, you know, just walking. But it didn't look like this, um, they probably didn't have walls in this way, it wasn't paved. But you have to use your sanctified imagination for a moment to picture this road just covered with people. And as Jesus is riding in, they get louder, which is a scary thing for them because close by there's a fortress called the Antonia Fortress where the Roman garrison would be in case any rebellion came up, they would come flying out of the Antonia Fortress to put down the, the rebellion and the insurrection. And the louder that these voices are getting, the religious leaders are getting freaked out. You guys got to keep it down. Like you guys, they're going to hear us in any moment. They're just, they're going to come out. We we read from uh, a Jewish historian named Josephus that this had actually happened in times past. That someone came in on the Passover to say that he was the Messiah and to try to get a rebellion going and it was just crushed by the Roman soldiers. So, Maybe in their mindset, the same thing is going to happen. That picture just uh, helps us to fathom what it looks like. Just the crowds of people waving the palm branches and they're singing out Hosanna to the son of David, a, a term for the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the palm branches, by the way, to the Hebrew people were like the stars and stripes to the United States. The last minted coin um, of Israel, uh, of the Jews, before they were were brought under the control of the Romans, had palm branches on them. It was like a sign, um, you know, how we have a a bald eagle. You know, there are certain symbols of a a nation. These palm branches, um, they they kind of show that maybe Jesus is not only, they didn't necessarily just see him as a, a spiritual leader, I really believe they saw him as the one that is going to come in and free them on the Passover from Roman power and authority. Now, it's so important as we consider this, that as this is happening, I, I think of Peter, James, and John. Remember that James and John said, hey, when, when you enter into your kingdom, or their mom said, can one of them you know, sit at your right hand and the other at your left? I mean, they're thinking that Jesus is going to come in in power. Peter, before Jesus, when he uh, predicted, when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, I'm gonna be crucified and rise again, Peter said, no, not you. Don't let it happen this way. And I really think that as this is happening, the people are crying out. I think Peter, James, and John are saying, get ready, this is it. This is it. You know, we're gonna take it to those Romans. You know, we are not gonna be under their authority. I think the people get into this fervor. and, And I believe that, As this is happening, we look in our Bible, and maybe you have a heading, and it says the triumphal entry, but the Romans would have never seen it this way. Um, If you've seen gladiator movies where the emperor comes riding in, that's their triumphal entry, right? Right? There's a chariot with gold and white horses and a procession of trumpeters and there are armies behind them and there are the prisoners that they've captured being dragged in in chains. That's a triumphal entry. I think the Romans would look at this rabbi riding in on a donkey and say, this is ridiculous. But to the Jewish people, they're saying, no, this is a sign of our, our king coming in. Portions of Psalm 118 Uh, to the Messiah would have been read at this point. And I'm not gonna go into the prophecy in depth this morning, but if you look up uh, this prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter nine, you'll find out that to the exact day that Messiah, the prince, would come, declared as the prince, is the exact day that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, 483 years from that point in time. Now, as we close and we come to this lesson we consider what it is that jesus has for us hosanna means god save now again more of a political term in many ways and this morning it's important for us to think what is it that we want from jesus today because sometimes when we say god save now We have the idea of how we want to be saved. When um, in lifeguard training, they say when you approach a drowning victim, you want to come in behind the victim, the person that's drowning, and you rescue them by putting your arm around them and dragging them back to shore through the water as you use this side stroke. But they're going to freak out when they see you coming in that way. And when they see your head, all they are going to think is buoy. And they are going to wrap their arms around your head and grab you. So you need to turn your head, you need to get away from them. And at times you need to let them get so tired and so exhausted. And if it's dangerous enough, they would even say, you gotta knock them out in order to come in behind them and say, and let them know I am trying to save you. I think sometimes we're flailing our arms wanting Jesus to save us. But he says, okay, let me do it this way. I'm gonna come in right behind you. I'm gonna take you. No, I need to be in control. I need to know where I'm going. I need to be the one that calls the shots and I'm not gonna surrender to you because I think my plan is better than your plan and my wisdom is better than your wisdom. And there are times when Jesus will let us flounder until we're ready to submit and give up and say, God, just come and save That was not the way that they were saying, save now. They were in many ways saying, save now. Save us now, the way that we want you to to save us. And as they come down into this uh, place towards Jerusalem, this is taken right as you're entering at the bottom of the Mount of Olives in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are these trees trees called juju trees And these thorns are the thorns that you you see used whenever they make a crown of thorns. Jesus comes into this place. We'll get into that more um, on Good Friday when we consider this. But some of the Pharisees in verse 39, they called to him from the crowd saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out and then in verse 41 as he drew near he saw the city and he wept over it this morning as we consider jesus coming sees the city and he weeps over it why did he weep what was it that he saw the word that um, is used here that he wept over it. The word that, that Luke uses in this, that he wept over it, is a word of crying out. Jesus is, is crying out. The way that you would mourn over someone that has died. And any of you that have been in a place of mourning, which I know many of you in the last year, couple of years, have gone through that. The sobs, they, they just come. They they come unexpectedly at times. They they come in in memory, they come in in thinking about so much, but Jesus here is weeping over Jerusalem. And what is it that he he's weeping over? Well, he goes on to say that if you only knew that this day was your day, that your peace was coming in, but now it's hidden from you. And what's going to happen in just a few years after this is that Jerusalem is gonna get decimated. Um, There's going to be a Roman emperor and a general that come in and just destroys Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, if only you knew that this day would be for your peace. Today, as we consider this, may we also look at one more aspect of this day. Because on the day that Jesus was writing in, you probably would have heard some trumpets that were going on. This was a specific day for the Jewish people. And it was a day that was known as Lamb Selection Day. The preparation for the Passover was already taking place. And before the Passover, what they would do is they would look for a lamb and the lamb would have to live with them for four days. And they would inspect the lamb. They would make sure that there was no blemish They would make sure that the lamb was a a good sacrifice because the Hebrew people would bring that lamb to be offered as a sacrifice for sins. When Jesus is baptized and John the Baptist sees him coming, John the Baptist cries out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on this day as lamb selection day, it was the day that Jesus was writing into Jerusalem. If you want to think of it this way, a lamb was riding on a donkey. And at this point in time, the question is this, after examining him, do you choose this lamb? Do you choose that lamb? See, Jesus was weeping because Jerusalem was rejecting that lamb. Jerusalem was rejecting him. And this morning, Jesus weeps for all of us The Lamb of God who comes to uh, take away the sins of the world, will you choose him? And then when we think about Jesus crying, how does Jesus cry for you? How does he weep for you? If you have followed Christ and you have given your life, if you've received him, if you have believed in him, he still weeps with us. And I'm so blessed by the fact that when Jesus weeps, like in John 11, As Pastor Bill taught last week, Jesus weeps because he relates to us. You know what? He weeps with your pain. Don't think for a moment that God is some distant God, some deity, some power that set the world and the planets and the universe in motion just to allow it to go through its phases and watch what happens. No, Jesus shows us that God is a God who cares for us deeply who is very intimately acquainted with all of our ways and knows what you're going through and knows the pain that you have faced. He knows the secrets of your heart that other people don't know and you are so afraid of telling other people what you're thinking because you would think that you would be rejected. He knows that. He knows the doubts that you have He knows the things that have happened to you in your past that sometimes you're so angry, but you don't know where to project that anger towards. And sometimes we project it towards God. He knows things that have happened to us and he knows things that we have done to hurt others that we feel so badly about. He knows all of that. And this morning, maybe he weeps for you in that way, but he also weeps for you if you have not received him, if you have not chosen him. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, it was because they had rejected him. And he knew the love and he knew the peace and he knew the life that he wanted to give to them. So as we spend time in worship, and I have the worship team come back up, I want to read this to you. This is by a man named Tim Keller who wrote this. Jesus who unites such apparent extremes of character into such an integrated and balanced whole demands an extreme response from every one of us. He forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of his kingdom to everyone then warns the most devout insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness. He is forever closing down our options. This man who could be weakened by the touch in a crowd of a woman um, on his way to bring back a little girl from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes from. And we haven't even yet witnessed the true depths of his restraint or the heights of his power. He is both our rest and he is the storm. He is both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword. And you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Those teachers of the law who began plotting to kill Jesus at the end of this episode in the temple, they may have been dead wrong about him, but their reaction makes perfect sense. But please do not try to keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him, center your entire life on him, And let his power reproduce his character in you. What an exhortation for us this morning. Don't push him to the periphery of your life. Either crown him or you're gonna reject him. And he would weep over you because he wants you to crown him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we wanna thank you for the message of what we now call the triumphal entry, but Lord, I find it ironic that on a day that we now call triumphal entry in our Bibles, Jesus, it was a day when you wept. It was a day when you wept over the rejection that people would um, that people would reject you from really being able to come in and save to really come in and to be able to change our DNA, our character from the inside out, to give us not only a future and a hope, but an understanding of the reason why we were even brought into this world, why we exist. So today I pray, first of all, Lord, for anyone here that has never received Christ as their Lord and their Savior, that like Zacchaeus, that this would be their climbing up on a tree day, that they would say, Jesus I want you to come into my life. It says in the Bible that Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And he says, if anyone would open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him. And that door is something that only we can open because he's not gonna kick the door down and he's not gonna pry it open. And I would ask this morning that if you've never received Christ, that you would pray this prayer with me to say, Jesus, I now open that door to you and I ask you to come into my life and I pray that you would have fellowship with me, that I would have fellowship with you. I confess my faults and my sin and my failure. I also confess that I have been afraid to surrender because I haven't trusted your character. But today, I willingly open that door and I ask you to lead me change my life and fill me with your spirit and father for those of us that have been believers those of us that have been regenerated followers of christ we ask you that when we pray god save now that we are not the ones to call the shots that lord we are not coming to you as simply the plan checker to approve our plans but we want to ask you to write your plan We want to ask you to build that plan in our lives. And God, give us the wisdom to know how to do that. And Lord, bring people into our lives that we would be willing to open up to that would help us along that path. And Lord, may we be able to help others along that path also. So Jesus, today, we do not sit here thinking that we could be neutral when it comes to you. Lord, I pray that we would open up and say, Jesus, take control. And I trust you because you're good and you've laid down your life for me. And today, Lord, we select you as our lamb. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.